Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. How's everybody doing today? All right. Well, it is good to be with you. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled that you're here checking things out. Uh, we'd love a chance just to reach out and say thank you so much for your visits. So you could do me a huge favor. Uh, even right now, just pull out your phone. All you got to do is text the word welcome to that number. Uh, that's all you got to do. And like I said, that, that gives me an opportunity just to reach out and say thank you for your visit. So if you do that for me, uh, I would really appreciate that. Uh, if you prefer a more old school approach to it, you can uh, fill out a card on our table right out here. Uh, just fill that out. Leave it on the table. We also have a free gift we'd love to put in your hands today before you head out. So please stop by there before you head home. Um, all right, so uh, we are in our, our series going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and last week we kicked off chapter two. Uh, we're going to continue in that today, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and pull that out and go to Acts chapter two. And last week, what we saw is the Holy Spirit finally came at Pentecost, right? So at the beginning of Acts, uh, we see the end of Jesus' time here on earth, and before he ascended, he told his disciples, uh, I'm ascending, I'm going back to heaven, but I want you guys to wait, to wait in Jerusalem and wait on the Holy Spirit. So they were waiting in Jerusalem, they're gathering together. It says that they gather together in this place called the Upper Room, about 120 folks gathering together on a regular basis, praying and waiting on the Holy Spirit. And then the day of Pentecost comes, this, uh, this time of, of a, a gathering of the Jewish people to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast that they called Pentecost. They're, they're coming together and, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes, right? And we saw last week that when the Holy Spirit came, it was pretty obvious, right? There was this loud, violent sound. It sounded like a violent wind coming in, and then and the Holy Spirit came down and descended and, and appeared over the disciples as, as tongues of fire. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds crazy and awesome. And then they start speaking in other languages, and it was just wild, right? They're speaking in other languages. They're proclaiming all about God, and this huge crowd gathers. This huge crowd gathers, and this is what brings us to today because Peter is going to take advantage of this opportunity. This, this crowd is gathering. And as we saw at the end of verse 13 in chapter 2, that some in the crowd uh, were wondering, what, what, what's going on? What is this all about? And now Peter is going to step in and preach his very first sermon. The first sermon that we're going to see in Acts, see a bunch of different sermons in Acts. It's the first one. This is Peter's first sermon. He's going to get up and he's going to tell this huge crowd all about what's happening and then uh, point to Jesus. He's going to make clear who Jesus is. And like I said, this is, this is Peter's first sermon. Um, and I remember vividly the first time I preached. Uh, so I got my first job in ministry as soon as I graduated high school. Uh, I had just turned 18 years old. My dad, who planted a church, hired me on as like the intern, which just meant I got to do all of the grunt work that nobody else wanted to do. So that was fun. But he also let me, you know, teach some, some Bible studies to teenagers and things like that. Uh, so I'm 35 now. I got my first job when I was 18. And then a couple years into that, I switched over to another church. And uh, the guy under me, or the guy uh, over me who was running the student ministry at that time, hired me on, uh, had me lead a couple of Bible studies. And then he finally let me preach one time. So this is probably a couple years into my time working at church. I was about 20 years old. And uh, it's my first time preaching at our student ministry. And there was, uh, at that time, there's probably like 80, 90 middle school and high school students there. And we had this, you know, whole service blocked off for students. So we would do a couple songs of worship. Uh, this guy, the youth pastor, uh, who's my boss, he would preach for, you know, 30, 
35, sometimes 40 minutes, something like that. Not, not terribly long. Uh, but he preached for a decent amount of time, and we have a couple more songs. And then we didn't. It was, you know, around an hour or so for the service. And we had other things going on on campus. There was uh, this kids program they would do on Wednesday nights as well. And we all tried to end around the same time, because if you ended too early, the teenagers would just kind of be crazy. You know, they're teenagers, what they do. They just run crazy across the campus and be all in the kids' space and doing crazy stuff. So I finally got my chance to preach, and and I, I prepared the sermon. This guy helped me out a lot with it. I went over it a couple times, and I was clocking in about, you know, 30, 35, something like that, minutes, and, and I, I felt good. And then I got up there and started, and I was so nervous. I was like shaking. Y'all think I talk fast now? This is normal. This is like intentionally slowed down version of Travis. So just try to imagine a 20-year-old version that's scared out of his mind and trying to preach a sermon. I was flying. And I preached my first sermon and I clocked it in 11 minutes. 11 minutes. That's, that's starting out the, the opening illustration to saying amen, the closing prayer, 11 minutes. Y'all, I was flying and I was terrified. And I'm sure I said something heretical. Now, some of y'all might be saying 11 minutes sounds good, Travis. Can we get back to the 11-minute sermons? No, sorry, we can't do that. Um, but that was my first sermon and it was, it was terrible. It was a terrifying experience. Uh, hopefully, I've gotten a little better since then. And thankfully, Peter's first sermon is way better than my first sermon. And that's what we're going to look at today. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and we're going to carry it all the way to verse 36, okay? So I know we're covering a big chunk today. We got a lot to do, um, and Blake's already warned me. He thinks I'm going until 2 o'clock. I promised him we'll be done by 1.30, all right? So don't worry about it. I'm just kidding, y'all. I wouldn't do that to you. But uh, starting in verse 14, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this, uh, and then we'll spend our time breaking down. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. If you don't have your Bible, feel free to follow along on the screens behind me. But starting in verse 14, it says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so this is Peter's first sermon. And not only is he explaining what's going on with the speaking in different languages, with the loud noise that they heard and everything that's going on, now he takes this opportunity to tell this crowd very clearly who Jesus is. And his main point, his main point in the sermon is that that end, the conclusion right there, verse 36, the reason he's doing this, the point that he's trying to make is this, that the crowd would know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. He wants this crowd to know for certain. That's a phrase that means uh, without any doubt, without any doubt in their mind, he wants to make it absolutely clear, no room for doubt, who Jesus is, and that he is Lord and Christ. So let me make sure we're on the same page. Let's define those. We talked about Lord a couple weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' ascension, right? When he ascends, he is made Lord over everything. And that word Lord means ruler. It means, you know, the guy in charge, the guy who's over everything, the boss, the CEO. That's what Lord means. Lord is also a, a word, a title that's used of God throughout the Old Testament. That's going to be important here in a few minutes. So he wants us to know that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, that he's ruler, that he's over everything. And he also wants us to know that he's Christ. Now, Christ is, is not Jesus' last name, right? And we've heard of Jesus Christ. It's not his last name, okay? Christ is a title. Christ is a title. And it literally means the anointed one, the anointed one. And it's a New Testament word. It's a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. You guys ever heard the term Messiah? How many in here? couple of y'all? Cool. Awesome. All right. So Messiah. Uh, Messiah is the anointed one in the Old Testament. It's one that was spoken of that, that he would come, that he would be the savior, that he would rescue and, and, and redeem God's people. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. And Peter is saying that Jesus is not just Lord. He's not just Lord and God. He's also the Christ. He's also the Messiah. He's the one that you guys have been waiting and anticipating for generations. It's Jesus. That's the point of his sermon. And like any good preacher, he's got three points to back up his claim. All right, so let's look at those three points. So there's three ways that Peter wants us to know for certain who Jesus is, that he is Lord and he is Christ. The first point right out of the beginning is the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit, what we saw last week in the first 13 verses, show us and demonstrate for us who Jesus is, who he, who he really is. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Peter starts out explaining, and remember when we, when we saw in verse 13, if you just look right above that, we saw with this crowd gathering, they're hearing people speak in different languages, talking about all that God has done. There's two responses. Some are saying, I want to hear more. What's going on? Tell me more about that. 
And then there's another group that's like, oh, don't listen to them. They're just drunk, all right? They're just drunk. They're filled on the new wine, the good stuff, right? That's what they're saying. But Peter clarifies that, and he says, no, 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 no. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. That means it's only nine o'clock in the morning, y'all. We're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And I know some of y'all be like, well, it's five o'clock somewhere. No, that's not. All right, stop that. Stop. It's nine in the morning, y'all. Calm down. Chill out with that. Nine in the morning. He's like, we're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. But what is happening, what you do here is a fulfillment of scripture. What you're seeing with your very eyes is scripture being fulfilled before you. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2. So that's the, that's the verses 17 through 21 in, in Acts chapter 2 here, is Peter quoting directly from the prophet Joel. So you can flip back if you want to, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which is an incredible chapter. The book of Job, it's only three chapters. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's, a, it's one of the minor prophets, right? We get the 12 minor prophets that close out your Old Testament. Joel's included in that. And Joel is all about uh, this prophecy uh, that the Lord speaks through Joel. It comes at a time in Israel's history where uh, the land was just completely destroyed by a locust plague. So there's a locust plague that happens, and there's this extreme famine that's going on in the land of Israel. And God sends his prophet Joel to come in, and he tells them, hey, the reason that the locust came and destroyed everything, the reason you are in a famine, is because of your sin. It's because of your sin. And you guys need to repent and come back to God or else judgment is coming upon you. And just real quick, when you study the Old Testament prophets, um, that's, that's the message for all of them. You can kind of look for these things. If you study the Old Testament prophets, you read through a book, look for these things. It always starts out with a charge against God's people. It always says, hey, you guys are in sin, and here's why. Here's, here's, sometimes it's, it's, it's a lot of ways, right? It's like, you guys are doing a lot of really bad stuff. So there's always a charge against God's people in the prophets. Second, there's always a call to repentance, hey, you're living this way in sin, stop it, come back to God. So there's a charge, there's a call to repentance, there's a call for judgment. So they say, if you don't repent, here's what's gonna happen. And then what I love about the Old Testament prophets, and Joel is no different, is it always ends with this beautiful picture of God restoring his people. And it talks about God preserving this remnant. It talks about God restoring the prosperity to the land. It talks about God bringing good fortune back to the people, welcoming them back and bringing them back in to his favor. And that's what Joel talks about. And that's the point that Peter is referencing here. So this point in Joel chapter two, this quote that he pulls from, it's already, you know, hey, here's what you've done wrong. You better repent or judgment's coming. And now Joel gives this beautiful picture of when this Messiah comes, this Savior, when he comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to pour out God's Spirit, and it's going to be this awesome, incredible thing. So why does this matter? Well, what's, what's Peter trying to do here? Well, the reason this matters, remember, his whole point is connecting who Jesus is. So this, this part in, in Joel chapter 2 what it was believed by any good Jew that would hear this, they would automatically know exactly what Peter was talking about. They believed that, that when the Messiah came, one of the signs of the Messiah was going to be this pouring out of God's spirit. And again, you got to remember the place of a Jew living in this time. that they've, they've been reading for years and years and years, generations upon generations, where they were reading the Old Testament, seeing God's word, and, and knowing. And there's going to be, there's coming a day where there's going to be this incredible Savior who's going to bring all of God's blessing, who's going to restore the nation of Israel, who's going to defeat our enemies. Like, they longed for the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come begging God to bring the Messiah. 
So there was this expectation and anticipation amongst the nation of Israel for this Messiah, for the Christ. And now what Peter is saying is that time is now. That time is now. Y'all don't have to wait anymore. That time is now. This is what he means when he, when he starts out and says, and in the last days. That's a phrase that would automatically have triggered in a Jewish person's mind, oh, he's talking about the age of the Messiah. He's talking about the time of the Messiah. And Peter's saying, look, what you guys are hearing, these other languages that you're hearing, this work that you're hearing, this proclamation of God that you're hearing, this is the Spirit being poured out. This is a sign that the Messiah is here, that the Messiah has come. And I love the language of that, that he says that God's Spirit is poured out on all people. That, that phrase, poured out, it's not just like, you know, you take a cup and you pour some water in it. That's not what it's talking about. That word means a flood, a flood, an unexpected flood that just overwhelms you and overpowers you. That's the Spirit. When God pours out a Spirit, it's not just a little bit. It's not just a little bit in the cup. No, he pours it out like a flood. And he does it on all people, right? It's not just some people. It's what we saw last week. It's not just some people at certain times. It's all of God's people get the Spirit. All of God's Spirit get this flood of the Holy Spirit. All of God's people get that. And he says that, that when that happens, there's going to be prophesying. There's going to be dreams and visions. Those, those were words and phrases used to connect God's work through the Spirit. And that's exactly what's happening. So Peter is saying, look, you guys have been waiting so long for the Messiah. Guess what? He's here. He's here, and he's poured out his spirit. You guys are witnessing the beginning of the last days. The time of the Messiah is here, and it's now. Another phrase that he uses to tie this together is something that, that a lot of the prophets speak of. And maybe you've seen this. Have you read through the Old Testament? Uh, he, he refers to it in, in verse 20 here as he quotes Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And this is another uh, thing of the Messiah. This is another expectation of the Messiah. That when, when God would come, he would bring healing and salvation and freedom and restoration to his people who repented and came back to him. But then the day of the Lord also meant judgment for those that didn't believe. For those that didn't believe. And when what Peter's saying here, by referencing Joel chapter 2, he's saying, hey, y'all, the time of the Messiah is now. And guess what? The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming. The clock's ticking. He's coming. Judgment is coming. You better repent. You better repent. And we see that at the end. We're going to look at uh, more specifically next week the, the response of the crowd to this sermon. But one of the things that they do, like, they hear this and, and, and they're cut to the heart and, and they're like, what, what do we do now? And Peter says, repent. It's the same message of the prophets. You've been confronted with your sin. You see your sin with clear eyes. What's, what are we supposed to do? We're to repent and call out to the Lord for salvation. Call out to the Lord for salvation. So to call out to the Lord. The other thing that the Lord does in this passage, the Lord pours out his spirit, right? And again, remember what, she, what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to make clear who Jesus is. And look what he says in verse 33. Jump down to verse 33 real quick. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he what? He has poured out. He has poured out. Jesus has poured out the Spirit. Don't miss the connection here. What he's saying here is you guys are expecting the Lord to pour out the Spirit. Guess what? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who has poured out his Spirit. You know what else that means? Who do you cry out to for salvation? The Lord? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Look at what he's doing here. He's making a point of who Jesus is. He is the Lord. 
He's the one you call out to for salvation. He's the one you come to. He's the one you repent to. All right, so the first proof of who Jesus is is that he has poured out the Spirit. And the time of the Messiah is now. We're seeing the clear works of Jesus. All right, so the second thing, the second proof that Peter gives is the person and work of Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he did during his time on earth. He points to this in, in starting in verse 22. Starting verse 22, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. It means pay attention, y'all. Pay attention. Focus in. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the other proof that Peter gives of who Jesus is, his true identity, who he really is, that he really is Lord, that he really is the Christ, that he really is the Messiah and the Savior, is what he accomplished during his time on earth, is who he was and what he did. And look, I love that Peter makes absolutely clear who he's talking about. Because again, put yourself in the mindset of a Jew during this time where they're waiting and they're anticipating for the Messiah. They didn't know who that was going to be. They knew what kind of to look for and some things that he would do, but they didn't know who it was. It was just kind of this, you know, theoretical idea of, of somebody or something that was going to do something really cool. But Peter brings it in and makes it real. He makes it tangible. And he says, this Jesus, if you underline things in your Bible, I want you to underline verse 23 where he says, this Jesus. And then I want you to jump down to verse 32 and underline again, right at the beginning, this Jesus. And then verse 36, jump down to there, this Jesus whom you crucified. Underline that in your Bibles. Peter is making absolutely clear who he's talking about. He's saying, hey, this Jesus of Nazareth, that guy, and they all knew what was going on, right? This was, this was not something that uh, would have been like, oh, gee, I wonder who they're talking about. No, they knew exactly who he was talking about. And again, Peter's, Peter's making it real for him, saying this Jesus, that guy, that guy from Nazareth, Jesus, that's the Messiah, that's the Lord, that's the Christ. And he says that, Jesus was attested to by God. It means that Jesus, his identity was proven by God. And, and how did he do that? Well, all the miracles, right? All the different stuff that he did. And I love that he, he says, he did this in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's like, y'all saw this. You saw the miracles. You saw it. You heard about it. You, you are aware of what Jesus has done during his time here. Like you've, you've heard about the feeding of the 5,000. You heard about him walking on water. You heard about him raising Lazarus over there from the dead. You heard about that, right? Y'all saw that. Like Jesus did some incredible things that they were witnesses to. And what Peter's saying here is, look, God was doing that through him to help you guys see who he was, to help you guys know that he was the Christ. So Jesus was attested to by God. He also says that this Jesus was crucified and killed. He was crucified and killed. He says that he was given up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We're, we're going to come back to that in a minute. All right, so just put a pin in that. We'll, we'll circle back to that. But he says, you crucified him. You killed him. You could have gave him over to the hands of lawless men. And, and he was crucified and killed. Y'all saw that. It happened just 50 days ago. This is not like, you know, we're fast forwarding 50 years. It was 50 days ago that that happened. You guys saw that. You, you saw him on a cross. You saw him crucified. You saw that he died. And guess what? He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He says, no, he, he was crucified and killed in verse 24. God raised him up, raised him up. Death could not 
hold him. He was raised from the dead. And guess what? They knew that too. They knew that too. This was not some surprise thing, right? Everybody knew what was going on. This was a big deal. This Jesus that was doing all this crazy stuff and telling people that he was God. And then he got crucified. And then the stone that was in his tomb, that was moved out of the way. And now his body is gone. It's gone. They knew this. Paul even tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 people before he ascended back to heaven. 500 people saw him in his risen state. So Peter is pointing out, look, you you guys have seen this. You guys know this. You've seen stuff with your very eyes. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss him. And they, they, they had been waiting so long for this Messiah. And here he is. He came. He did all this incredible stuff. He died and he was raised again. And some in the crowd missed it. They missed it. How often do we miss Jesus? How often do we just move on with other things in our lives, focusing and living for other things in our lives, and and we miss him? We miss Jesus. So what, what, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus is who he said he was. It tells us that Jesus is who he said he was. And what I, what I love is, is remember, again, the purpose of Acts. Luke is writing to a guy who is struggling with his faith, who's having some doubt, having maybe some fear in his life, who's struggling a little bit. And he's writing to remind him of this very truth. Jesus is who he said he was. When we struggle with doubt and fear, when difficult things come, we can always go back and hold tightly onto that truth that Jesus is who he said he was. We can believe that for certain. I hate the term blind faith, y'all. We do not have blind faith. We have good grounds for our faith. It is right here, and we can hold tightly to this. We can know for certain, just like Peter's talking about, we can know for certain who Jesus is. All right, so we see that Jjesus' true identity is proven by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus does that, only he could do that. And then we see that through his person and work, the things that he did while he was on this earth. And the last thing we see is the fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture. Look again at, at verses 25 through 36. I'm going to read this one more time for us. Starting in verse 25, it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Well, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so in, in this entire passage, in this entire sermon, Peter uses four key Old Testament quotes or references. And of all four of those, he makes it very clear that Jesus is the one who fulfilled those. And this, again, this, this helps us see who Jesus is. Again, the, the, the Messiah was spoken of throughout the Old Testament. There's a ton of different prophecies about who this person was going to be and what he was going to do. And Jesus checks every single box. Again, that, that helps us know with confidence, with assurance, who Jesus is. So that's why Peter's doing this, why he's going back and pointing to these Old Testament references and going, hey, you remember we talked about that? Remember the Messiah was going to do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus did that. Oh, you know, remember when the Messiah was going to do this and that? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus did that. Like he's helping them see clearly who Jesus is. All right, so let's walk through these references. So the first one we already talked about, it's Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. We see that in verses 17 through 21. All right, so we already talked about that one. Jesus fulfills this prophecy by pouring out the Spirit, right? Like that's why Peter references that. That's what's going on. He's explaining what's happening. Jesus poured out the Spirit. And then the next one comes starting in verse 25. He says, for David says concerning him. So this is, this is David writing these words. And then the following verses, so verses 25 through 28, uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And just a side note, I can't talk too much about this because I really will keep you guys till 2 o'clock. But that's one of my favorite Psalms. I love Psalm 16. I'll preach that one day, I'm sure. But it is awesome. It, it speaks to this, this life that we have in God, right? It is this life that is, that is full of joy and life and hope, and trust in God, and following his ways. It's a beautiful psalm, beautiful psalm. So Peter quotes this, and he focuses in specifically on verse 27. So look again at verse 27. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. Now it's interesting, and I'll try not to nerd out too much on you guys, but he, he switches pronouns here. He switches pronouns, all right? So he starts out and he says, the Lord is always before me, my right hand, that I may not be shaken, my heart, my tongue, my flesh. You will not abandon my soul. You make known to me. You will make me. But look at verse 27. He doesn't say, you will not let me, your holy one. He says, you will not let your holy one. Holy one's capitalized, all right? That's key. These things are key, all right? I know we can, you know, Grammar is a little, you know, I don't love grammar, all right? I, I failed that all the time in school, all right? That was a struggle for me. But it, it's important when we're studying Scripture and we're reading God's Word. We've got to pay attention to these things, all right? So he says, your holy one. Now, that holy one is talking about somebody specific. Again, it's capitalized, right? He's talking about somebody specific. And that term holy one came to be used by Jews in reference to the Messiah. So when, when Jews would read this, they would say, your holy one, oh, that, that, that's the Messiah, See, David's talking about some of his stuff, but he's also talking about the Messiah, your Holy One. That's who he's talking about. And Peter even makes this clear when he, when he says, your Holy One will not see corruption. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. They both died and was buried. He's kind of being a little sarcastic, which I, I love about that. Uh, he's going to be like, guys, I, I, look, I, I can say with confidence, like I know 100% that David died. All right, he's dead. He's buried. Look, you can go check out his tomb. All right, so he's being a little sarcastic here, but he's making a point. This can't be talking about David. The, the phrase, your holy one will not see corruption, that can't be talking about David because he did see corruption. He did die. He was buried. So it's not referring to David. It's referring to the Messiah. And guess what he says? He says he was buried. He was dead. But guess what? This Jesus God raised up. 
He raised up, and of that we are witnesses. And he did not let his body see corruption, right? Like, this is the point he's making. He's showing us very clearly who Jesus is. So Jesus fulfills Psalm 16. Another reference to the Old Testament comes in verse 30. Peter says this, being therefore a prophet, so he's referring to David here, David the prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Okay, so this, this goes back, if you want to read this passage, it's not a direct quote, but it references something that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this promise to David that eventually David would have this descendant, this, this ancestor, this descendant in the line of David that would reign on God's throne forever, forever. And that promise came to be believed that, that that's got to be the Messiah. That's got to be the Messiah because the Israelites saw king after king died and get buried. Another one came and died and was buried. And at this point, at this point in Israel's history, it's been generations. It's been hundreds of years since they had a king. So this can't be an earthly king. This can't just be some guy out there, right? But we do know that, that whoever's going to be on the throne of God forever has to be a descendant of David. You know who's a descendant of David? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is David's descendant. Jesus is the one who fulfills this. Jesus is the one who is reigning on the throne of God forever. He fulfills this, all right? So he fulfills 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the last quote that Peter gives is in verse 34 and 35. He quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And this is a, this is a popular psalm. You, you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see this psalm referenced numerous times, right? This is a big one. Jesus even references this one. So he says, uh, it's Psalm 100, or sorry, 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, this, this can't be David, right? David's talking about somebody else. He says, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, that's not David, that's somebody else. That's somebody else. And this, the Lord God is, is saying to another Lord that you're going to sit at my right hand and, and, until I make your enemies a footstool. All right, so what, what Peter says here, uh, right before that, right? Like if, if, you, if you back up verse 33, he says, being therefore exalted where? At the right hand of God. It's not accident that he's using that terminology. He's making a point here. David couldn't have done that because again, David is buried. You can go check his tomb out. He can't be the one that fulfilled that. But guess who is the one who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father? Jesus. Jesus, and he is Lord and Messiah. So again, Jesus fulfills that prophecy. So Peter, again, he's using all of these familiar Old Testament references and quotes to say clearly, without a doubt, Jesus is the one you guys are looking for. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. So what does this teach us? What does this teach us? Well, a couple of points before we, we end today. Well, what, what can we get from this, that Jesus has fulfilled all this scripture? Well, one, what it tells us is that, that all that Jesus did, all that Jesus did was all a part of God's plan. He was always, from, from day one, fulfilling God's plan. Look, look at verse 36. It says that, verse 36, that, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God made him Lord and Christ. Uh, another reference to this is, is verse 23, where it says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
What that means is, is God was not surprised by the crucifixion. He wasn't taken aback by it, right? Like when we read the, the crucifixion story, it wasn't like, you know, when, when they, they present uh, Barabbas and Jesus and Pilate's like, hey, you get to pick one to be free. The other one is going to be crucified. And the crowd picks Barabbas to be freed. God wasn't like, oh man, was not expecting that. You know, oh man, I, I really thought that was going another way, but it didn't. So now I got to figure out something. Okay, so he's going to be crucified. Let me figure out what to do. Oh, I think I'll raise him from the dead. No, that, that's, not, that's, not what ha- that's not the picture that we're given in scripture. That's not the words that we're given here. It says that, that God planned this. It said that Jesus was delivered up to, according to the definite plan. That word definite means to determine something, to fix something, to appoint something, to set the limits for something. He determined this. He determined. It, this was his plan, right? Another word for plan is, is purpose and will. This was God's plan all along. So he was delivered up according to the plan of God, according to God's call. This was God's idea. This is what God was doing. This was his plan. It says that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now I'm going to step into a little bit of controversy here because it's fun and, uh, and I like doing that, but it's good for us, right? It's going to stretch us and grow us a little bit. So foreknowledge, that, that, word, that word means to, to know something beforehand, right? It means to know something beforehand, but also the word that's used here in the original language, it's a word that can mean to predetermine something to happen. Right, predetermined something to happen. Look, there, there's a lot of thoughts on God's foreknowledge. All right, and I can't, you know, break it down uh, fully for you here today. Uh, but if you ever want to talk about that, I love nerding out on this stuff. So just bear with me for a moment. There's lots of thoughts on God's foreknowledge. None of us disagree, right, that God has foreknowledge of the future, right? Like He knows what's going to happen. I think all of us would agree on that. The debate comes in of of how God knows that, of how God knows that. Now, you could say, well, God just knows because he's outside of time and space, and he can just see what's going to happen, and he just, he just knows that kind of stuff. That's just what it's talking about. He just knows what's going to happen. Or it could mean that the reason he knows what's going to happen is because he decides what's going to happen. And I don't want to leave you guys hanging where, where I land on this. This is good people that love Jesus can land on either side of this debate. I land over here where the reason God has foreknowledge is because he knows exactly what's going to happen because he decided what's going to happen. That's where I land. Uh, I think scripture speaks a lot to God's sovereignty and control over all things. And that's the sense that we get here in this passage, that God was not taken aback. He was not surprised by Jesus's death and crucifixion, that he planned it, that he knew exactly what was gonna happen because it was his plan, his purpose happening and unfolding before our eyes. Now, now here's where, where I hope, no matter, again, no matter where you fall on this, this should give us comfort. That should give us comfort and a lot of comfort because what this tells us is that God always has us in his hands. He always has us in his hands. That, that no matter what the situation, I mean, the, the most wicked thing that's ever happened, the death of God himself, perfect God, done nothing wrong, killed and crucified, God was at work in that. He was at work in that. So no matter what dark days we're facing, no matter what, what difficulty we're going through right now, no matter what, what valley we're in, and, and sometimes those valleys can go deep and they can go dark. I get it. But we can know for certain that our God is right there with us, holding our hand and carrying us through that. The truth of God's sovereignty, that, that he's over all things, should bring us great comfort. Because when he says in Romans 8, 28, that, that he's working all things, all things, not just good things, but all things, even bad things, that he's working it together for his plan. The reason we can have confidence in that is because God has the power to actually do that. He has the power to do that. 
He is in control at all times. We can trust our God. This is good news, y'all. This is good news for us. Another thing that we see here, looking at how Jesus fulfills Scripture, what it tells us is this beautiful truth that all Scripture is about Jesus, that everything is about Jesus. We, we have this uh, kid's Bible that we read to our kids sometimes. It's a Jesus storybook Bible. I don't know if you guys have heard that, but I love the language the author uses when she talks about this Bible. She says that, that every story whispers the name of Jesus. I mean, I love that. I love that. And y'all, that, that's why we read Scripture that's why we read the confusing stuff. That's why we read the things that we think might be a little boring, right? That's why we dig into Scripture, because it, it's all about Jesus. Everything we read is pointing to Jesus. It whispers his name. That was a beautiful thing. So all Scripture points to Jesus. Another thing that we can get from this is that God's word can be trusted, right? We see just four instances right off the bat in one sermon where Peter's like, oh yeah, God said he was going to do this, and guess what? He did it. God said he was going to do this, and yeah, he did it. Yeah, God said this was going to happen, and guess what? It happened. We can trust God's word. We can trust his promises. When he says something's going to happen, we can have full confidence in that. That is a guarantee from the most powerful God, the most sovereign God over all the things. When he says it's going to happen, we can trust that. We can hold tightly onto those promises. Our God fulfills his word. And the last thing that we see from this, and this is Peter's point, only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can save. Only he is both Lord and Christ. Only he is both ruler and Lord and over all things and the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of all. Only Jesus can save. He is the one, as, as Joel quotes, says, yeah, you want to avoid the day of judgment? Guess what? Good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. And guess who's the Lord? Jesus. Jesus. He is the one we call out to for salvation. He's the one that we trust with our lives. This is Peter's entire point. Look, look at how they respond. Again, we're going to look at this more closely, but look at verse 37. It says, now when, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, right? That their, their eyes were open to the depths of their sin, their wickedness, that they, that they did deserve judgment. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what, what are we supposed to do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, what, what good news is that? When we feel the weight of our sin, we feel all, all the ways we've gone wrong, all the ways we've messed up, all the mistakes, all the guilt and the shame that we carry. Guess, guess what we can do? We can come back to Jesus. And he's right there with his arms open wide, ready to grab us and hold us tight. That's the message of the gospel. That's who Jesus is. He is Lord and he is Christ. He is Savior believers in the room, let's live like that. Let's live like Jesus really is who he says he is. Let's live like Jesus really is the Lord and ruler of our lives, that he really is the only savior that we have. Let's trust in him. Let's give him everything. So as we end today, I want to I leave us with a question. 
I want us to think about this as we go, today as we go about our weeks. I want us to ask ourselves this. What place does Jesus occupy in my life? What place does Jesus occupy in my life? And, and, and let's, let's do ourselves a favor and, and, and be honest with that answer. You know, I think, you know, especially those of us who are, who are believers in the room, I think we know what we're supposed to say with that answer, right? I think we know what the correct answer is. But, but what, do our, what do our lives right now say the answer is? What place does Jesus occupy in my life? I don't know about you, but, but too often I find myself and just kind of, you know, Jesus is just part of my life. He's just one of the many things that, that I chase after, that I pursue, that I live for. Let's stop living for the things of this world, though. Stop living for the so many things that we put our hopes in, that we put our confidence in, that we put our faith in. Let's put it back in Jesus. This stuff, it can't save us. It can't deliver us. It can't fulfill us. I told you I wasn't going to spend too much time in Psalm 16, but I, I got to read one verse, y'all. I got to read one verse. Psalm 1611, it says, this is how the psalm ends. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the life that's promised in Jesus Christ. That's the life fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. How often are we just chasing after so many other things in our lives, in this world, right now, looking for joy, looking for fulfillment, looking for satisfaction? That's not found there. It's only found in Jesus. It's only found in him. Y'all, let's not miss the true Jesus. This is the true Jesus, the one that, that leads us the one that gives us full joy, the one that gives us pleasures forevermore, that's Jesus. Let's not be like the crowd who was longing so much for this Messiah, praying and begging God, bring the Messiah. And then he comes, and they didn't like him, so they killed him. They missed Jesus. Again, how often do we miss Jesus? How often are we just living so focused on what I have going on right here, right now in front of me, that I miss Jesus? Let's not miss Jesus. You know, so let's, not be, let's not be saved, but not full of life, right? Let's not just get our get out of hell free card and then just go through the motions. And again, sometimes that's how it feels, right? Sometimes it feels like I'm just, I'm just going through the motions. I don't have this, this full life that Jesus talks about in him. That's what he wants for us. The way we get there is, is to repent and come back to him. Come back to him, be with him, sit in his presence, spend time in his word, spend time with other believers. This, this, is how we, this is how we live the full life that Jesus has called us to. So what place does Jesus occupy in my life right now? He's not occupying the primary place in your life. The good news of the gospel says we can repent and come back to Jesus. We can come back to Jesus. We don't have to live that life anymore. We don't have to go that way. We can come back to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a believer, I want you to remember Peter's words. Jesus is the only way for this stuff. Jesus is the only way for salvation, that he, that he really is everything that he said he was. All of this is true. Jesus is who he said he was, and the day of the Lord is coming. 
Judgment is coming. Well, we, can't, we can't escape that. We can't just ignore that and pretend like it's not going to happen. Judgment is coming, but that doesn't have to be our destiny. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, as Peter says, the way to find freedom, the way to find forgiveness of your sins is to call out to Jesus. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him for salvation. Put your faith and your trust in him. Moment I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come, and, and as we do every single Sunday, we're going to have this time to remember who Jesus is, to remember what he's done through us, to be active participating in communion. We do this every Sunday. So believers in the room, as I pray, I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer. Let me spend some time just examining your life. What, what, what place does Jesus have right now? What are some areas that I need to let go of and come back to Jesus? What are some areas I need to repent of and come back to Jesus? Do that. The band's going to come, they're going to sing, they're going to play. And as you feel led, believer in the room, this is just for believers in the room. As you feel led, you can get up and go to either side of the room. We have tables over here with the elements. And you, you take the bread and you take the cup representing Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross for our sins. We, we take, we eat, we remember, and we celebrate our Lord and Christ Jesus, this Jesus. We celebrate and worship him. And if you're not a believer in the room, this time isn't for you, but it can be. It can be again. Jesus says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him. All that means is you say, Jesus, I, I just like the crowd here. I, I see my sin. I know I'm a sinner that needs judgment. And I'm asking you to save me. Rescue me. Forgive me of my sins. This is what Jesus does. This is who he is. He is Lord and Messiah. He is Lord and Savior. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for who you are, Lord, that, that we can know for certain who you are, Jesus. That you don't leave us to wonder. You don't leave us to second guess. Lord, you, you give us assurance through your word. Lord, you showed us clearly who you were. Jesus, we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that we can have full confidence in who you are and all that you've done. Lord, I pray for us as we go about our days and our lives this week, Lord, that, that we would make you primary, Lord, that you would be in the center of everything, of all that we are, of all that we do, Jesus, that, that we would look to you first and foremost, that we would live fully devoted lives to you, Jesus that we would enjoy the life that you have us, Lord, that the life that you so freely give to us, Lord, that the fulfillment and satisfaction, the hope, the joy, the trust, the security that only you provide, Jesus. Let us rest fully and completely in that. Lord, we thank you again for who you are, for all that you've done. Lord, I thank you for your salvation. Lord, I thank you that you're a God that loves to save, loves to rescue and set us free and redeem us, Lord. So again, Lord, we lift high your name today, our Lord and our Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.